together to Exodus 24. And while you turn there, I want to remind you of how we got here. Long ago, God made promises to Abraham. That's Genesis 12 and 15 and 17. I'll be a God to you and to your children and your children's children after you. I'll give them the land of Canaan, but not yet. I'm going to take your people to a place where they will grow, where they will suffer, where they will be formed into a people. All the while, the iniquity of the people of the land of Canaan will continue to get more severe. And then when I deliver you out, I will judge those peoples and their sins by my hand through giving you that land. So everything that we've studied up to this point Uh, All of that has been a portion of the fulfillment of God's promises. Exodus really is uh, the fulfillment of those promises to Abraham. Red Sea parting, Ten Commandments, Book of the Covenant. God is saying to Abraham's offspring, I'm your God, you be my people. It's a covenant relationship. Now, we just finished a portion called the Book of the Covenant, laws specifically related to the nation of Israel. And here we begin a new section. It's a, it's a ratifying of the arrangement of this covenant which God has made with his people. And so we pick up at chapter 24, Exodus, and remember that this is God's word. Then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near And the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandments which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. This is God's word. Let's pray for his ministry and his help. 
Father in heaven, we cannot bear fruit on our own, but your spirit does that. And so we pray as we study your word that you would give your people ears to hear what your spirit says and that you would from the preaching and teaching of your word from your voice spoken into our hearts would you transform us I pray that you would again be willing to use an ordinary sinner like me to point this narrow way to Christ Jesus in whose name we pray amen what's the What's the purpose of Christian worship? I mean, what are we doing here every week? I wonder if you've ever thought about it. I mean, we call this a worship service. So who is the recipient of the service? Your answer to that question might say something about your background. It might even say something about your own motivation for being here. Uh, What do you suppose non-Christians think you're doing here? What would they look at and say, well, I guess that is entertainment? Well, you recognize, of course, if it's entertainment, you'd probably be going to the church with the best music in town, the best pastor in town, the best preaching in town, maybe the best-looking guy up front. Thanks for coming anyway. If it's entertainment, there's better entertainment, isn't it? Maybe it's not that the worship service is central. And so you'd, you'd pick a church based on what it could do for your children or how you could connect with others, maybe some activities, and, and then the worship service itself would be secondary. Folks in the church usually know better than that. Worship can't be entertainment. And so what is it? Maybe worship is, is inspiration, meant to lift you up. You've had a difficult week. It's meant to, to carry you on into the next week and through it. And so if that's the case, then you will keep coming as long as you are inspired, as long as you are carried through the next week, as long as you know you need inspiration. Or maybe the purpose of, of worship is so that God's people can use their gifts. That sounds closer, doesn't it? to use their gifts. People get to serve. Other people get to benefit from their service. She's got a great voice. He's really good with puppets. She's got a talent to share. Another possible option, Christian worship is a, is a teaching time. This is a concept that might appeal to some of us, at least in theory, the pastor studies. And then on Sunday, he gives us something that's instructive, maybe something that's convicting by way of application. We've been taught. And so we leave having learned something. And why wouldn't you come to that conclusion when there's 500 million sermons available online where you can learn? But then you might need to ask, what in the world are we doing here worshiping? If this is just teaching, you could go to the internet. Well, maybe they built in everything before the sermon in order to, to help people who are late get in on time for the teaching and then of course you got to wind things down and so we've got some songs on the back end if worship is just teaching then you should probably go and pluck the diamond out of the middle of the coal not waste your time coming we call this a worship service so who is the recipient of the service if christian worship is entertainment or inspiration If it's an outlet for you to use your gifts, it's simply a teaching time, then you 
are, in all of those scenarios, the recipient of the service. Does that seem right? Probably not. So what is it? What are we doing here? The worship service that you are participating in today, that you have been a part of up to this point, is actually modeled after Exodus chapter 24. And I would argue, in fact, that all of the Old Testament and all of New Testament worship is modeled after this chapter. Because the real purpose of Christian worship is covenant renewal. What? Covenant renewal. What does that mean? That is that God's people gather to confirm again, the Lord is our God, we are his people, you and I serve, and the Lord is the one who receives the worship. Exodus 24 is a covenant renewal service. It's a spiritual framework for everything that we're doing here. And so our text basically teaches us that in true biblical worship, you meet and fellowship with the living God. That is far richer than singing some songs It's far richer than listening to a sermon, reciting some things. And so our passage breaks down into three. The summons, the symbols, the splendor. We'll start with the summons. Another way to say this is that God has called you to worship. And that's where the text begins in verses 1 and 2. Then God said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Chapters 20 through 23, God gave his people the terms of the covenant. I I saved you. Now, these are the terms upon which our relationship will be fostered. And then chapter 24, the covenant is, is ratified. It is inaugurated. It is celebrated. God summons his people to worship him. But even the summons tells us that this is a holy God. How can you tell that? Because you notice the distinctions of proximity that the Lord places. The people, they can't even come up on the mountain at all. On the mountain, but not close, 73 may come. They can worship from afar, but only Moses can actually come near to the Lord. First, God really is holy. He is perfect in righteousness. He is greater than. He is pure. So sinful, unclean people can't come close to him. There's certainly a safety component that's built into the text here. But secondly, God's teaching them to honor his holiness. How do we honor God's holiness? Well, for them, They only approach him when and how God instructs them. In other words, God sets the terms. So whenever human beings create a religion of their own, they always get to set the terms. They approach God however they think it seems right. That's true today just as it was in the ancient world. But in the Bible, God summons you to worship and he sets the terms because he's God. How did they, the people of God in the Old Testament, approach the Lord? Verses 1 and 2 make it really clear. There's no approach to him except through a mediator. Either the representatives, that is these 70 who sort of serve as a kind of priest, or the one, this one man Moses who is akin to a prophet. But where are the millions? Where are the millions who came out of Egypt? They're far below at the base of the mountain. 
And so even today, friends, God summons you to come and worship him, and he still sets the terms. What are his terms? 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 21, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, with full assurance of faith. So the value of, of studying a text like Exodus 24 is you and I still need to learn what it means to honor God's holiness. Is God any less holy today? No. Is he any less separate from sinners? No. But something's different. So now the summons of God to come and worship doesn't mean that you stand far at the base of the mountain. You still come on his terms, but the terms that he sets are these. Come to me through Christ, and then thereby your access to the holy God is wide open. So when you come today by faith in Christ, you're standing here, not on your own terms. You are standing here in Christ. And so when we stand up and we grab our bulletins and we recite together a a call to worship at the start of the service, you can think of it as a summons from God that you and I would come and worship him, but we don't come standing here, hey, my heart's pretty good. I got full assurance because I've been fairly good. No, we come only through Christ. You're not here because of habit. And the call to worship isn't just a a mundane, responsive reading. You're here because those who have been assembled here have been summoned in Christ. Incidentally, the New Testament word that is often translated for church or assembly is the word ecclesia. And it's a word that means a calling. It means a summons to gather which is how we should see ourselves, not simply as, oh, well, we meet at the alumni center. Or we hope we have a building one day and then we'll be a church. No, we are those who have been summoned from various parts to one place and we are one people. And we celebrate through Christ the relationship that God has given to us. That's what worship is. So therefore, your participation and your presence actually and matters. You're not here to be entertained or inspired or taught. You're actually answering God's call to worship and serve the Lord. This is a covenant renewal. The Lord is our God. He has saved us. We will confirm this covenant to him again by making this the substance of our lives. In true biblical worship, you meet and you fellowship with the living God. That's the summons. Now let's look at the symbols. Three symbols in our text in verses 3 through 11. And these symbols are essential in the Old Testament and also in the New Testament worship. These are part of what God uses to aid our meeting and our fellowship with the Lord. And so you'll see these three, the book, the blood, the bread. First, I want you to notice the book. I had this underlined in my Bible long before I came to this particular portion to preach. Verse 3, Moses told the people all the words of the Lord. Verse 4, Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. 
Verse 7, Moses took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. So what you're witnessing in these verses, friends, is the precise method in which the Bible was written. God spoke to his chosen witnesses who told the people what the Lord had spoken, and then that person wrote down the words that the Lord had spoken, and then later throughout successive generations, that word which had been told and written was then proclaimed again in the hearing of God's people. Critical scholars often look at the Bible and they say, well, clearly it was an oral tradition, and and at some point one big editor came together and just pulled together all the things that people were saying about God, which means this isn't really God's word. It's a, it's a brilliant and clever hypothesis to make sure that this is not actual authority. The Bible says, no, actually what God did was speak to his chosen men and they wrote it down. And they didn't write it down 500 years, 1,000 years later. There is no grand editor. The Lord weaves this story together through thousands of years. The second half of verse 3, what did the people do? All the people answered, and with one voice they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And then again, after the word is read, they said, verse 7, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. So God wants his people and his worship to be built around his book so that when he speaks, they respond. And it is not overconfidence on their part. We'll do everything the Lord has spoken. They're actually doing what they should do. This is the nature of covenants. Keeping all of it is the only way to keep it. And so they're either going to say, no, I don't think we want you to be our Lord. We're going to stroll back into Egypt and get ourselves re-enslaved. Or they're going to say, yes, you are our Lord. You are almighty and we will obey you. And you know this principially, don't you? I mean, nobody goes down to the marriage altar and says, well, I'm I'm willing to be faithful sometimes. No, you recognize that to keep a covenant is to be faithful to a covenant. And you also don't notice, don't you, that it's a book written, Word of God, and it demands from here that future generations must read it and affirm for themselves, yes, I want Yahweh to be my God. And we want to do what he says. So friends, this symbol actually makes the preaching of God's word in your church so much more than a simple learning opportunity. Because in true biblical worship, you meet and you fellowship with the living God. How do you meet him? Through his book, which makes him known. And so the words that were given to Moses are added to the words that were given to David and later to the words that were given to the apostle Paul. How do we apply this in New Testament worship today? You're still people of the book. And number two, you're still called to respond in an obedient, humble way. So when God's word is read in Exodus 24, they respond. They think to themselves, this is serious. God is speaking. I'm listening. He's gracious. He's actually forged a relationship with me. I will obey. And so I'm not saying that you should stand up in this worship service and say, all that the Lord has said, I will do. That would probably be distracting. But I wonder if it wouldn't be helpful for you to approach the preaching of God's word, even the reading of God's word 
with a sense that you are to respond in your head and in your heart through the help of the Holy Spirit. This is serious. God speaks. I'm listening to the Word of God. What He says, I will do. And so just as the book was meant to to be read to successive generations and many times throughout, so the Bible is meant to be read and preached weekly in worship. it's, It's actually an important part of covenant renewal. God speaks, and you would do well to say, the Lord is the one speaking, not Eric. Would be well do well to remember this. I wonder what you're thinking about in covenant renewal when God's word is read and spoken. I hope I can keep my eyelids open. Wonder what we're gonna have for lunch. Where is that cute girl, that cute guy that I've noticed from afar? You're here to meet in fellowship with the living God. How's that possible? Because first, you're people of the book. Second is the blood. And we should acknowledge in our culture that blood and splattering of blood seems so odd to us, sacrifices. But I should assure you that Moses and the people of God understood it because this is the way that covenants were made in real life in the ancient world. So chapter 20, God gave instructions on what an altar should look like and how they should meet in fellowship with the living God. And how is it? It happens because God demands a sacrifice. And then verse 5 talks about burnt offerings. And these are the things which are dedicated entirely to God so that every part of the animal is simply burned to ashes. And then it talks about peace offerings or what we might call fellowship offerings. And this is shared with the priests. It's shared with the people. And then the fat portion is laid on God's altar. And it too is burned to ashes. And there's the altar. And the altar represents God. And here's these 12 pillars or stones set up. And they represent the tribes of Israel, all of whom are saying, we too commit ourselves to obey. Animal sacrifices? Blood? Seems so odd to us. One Old Testament scholar explains that slaughtering and cooking meat points them to this principle of substitutionary atonement that sounds like a complicated theological word it's it's actually really simple for God's people the message is this for me to live something must die in my place which is why in verse 6, Moses takes a portion of the blood and the bowls and he, and he later throws it on the people which shows them that you receive the benefit of the substitute. The blood is shed for you. God's the other party in the covenant. Blood is poured out in the altar, and this ceremony preaches a message of grace to God's people. It's a vivid reminder that there's a substitute offered, and in this case, this slain animal points to the eventual perfect substitute of a sacrifice for this sinner, for you. You ever heard the term blood stains? It's because blood really does stain clothes and everything else, and they don't have spray and wash. And so this generation is going to walk around, be sure, they're going to walk around for the rest of their lives with blood stains all over their clothes. And so for the Hebrew people, this worship ceremony is vivid. And it is extraordinary so that they will never forget the blood 
the blood on their hands, the blood on their faces, the blood on their clothes, and it actually preaches a message to them that you really only have one hope. God's going to have to accept me on the basis of a sacrifice. He's going to have to accept me by grace alone. It's a vastly different kind of worship than we have today. Old Testament worship is bloody. Why is New Testament worship so clean? Why is it filled with symbols like water? Did God do away with the symbol of, of blood? No, the symbol of blood remains, but the Lord has stopped the flow of blood by accepting this one full and final sacrifice. God gave the sacrifice by becoming the sacrifice And it is Christ on the cross. You better believe the blood is still a present and important symbol. It actually aids your meeting and your fellowship with the living God. Present in worship today is a book. Present today in worship is the blood of Christ. For you to live eternally in the presence of God, someone must die in your place. And God loved you so much that he spilled, that he sprinkled the blood of his perfect son on you so that you, with thankfulness, would embrace Christ from the depths of your heart. No, this is no dead worship. This is a covenant renewal service. Three symbols, the book, the blood, finally the bread. Words are read. Sacrifices are slain. God invites Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, 70 others to break bread with him on Mount Sinai. In the ancient world, a meal follows a covenant relationship. It it symbolizes here that the parties are at peace, that they receive one another as friends or allies. And so the message of verses 9 through 11 is this. Through blood sacrifice, God welcomes his people. Many of you know from reading other parts of the Bible that no one sees the face of God and can live. Verse 10 seems to say differently. They saw the God of Israel. So how is that possible? The sentence is actually crafted with care. It does not say that they saw Yahweh personally, but only that they saw the God of Israel. He employs the name Elohim in order to give the sense that there's some sort of divine phenomenon on this mountain. It's actually difficult to explain. Here's our description. All we could see was what the pavement underneath his feet looked like. Now, they are not seeing the face of God, but they are experiencing God. Here's the takeaway. Christ instituted another covenant meal to celebrate this covenant renewal service. And so when you and I gather for worship service twice a month, we share this covenant meal with God, and it's called the Lord's Supper. And there we sit and we drink wine together and we eat bread with the Lord. And it symbolizes that through this blood sacrifice, God receives us. He welcomes us into his presence. We are his people. So the bread and the wine says you're at peace with God. In true biblical worship, you meet and fellowship with the living God. So we have the summons. We have the symbols. Those symbols are book, blood, bread. Now we close with splendor. One pastor said, and I think it's exactly right, 
Exodus 24 is one of the most important chapters in the Old Testament. It lays out a biblical pattern for worship. It establishes God's covenant with his people on the basis of blood. It tells us how God gave us the law. It tells us that mortal men were possibly able to meet with their maker and live to tell about it. But the climax of this whole chapter is when Moses enters into the glory of God. Look at verse 12. God calls Moses back up. Pick up at verse 15. Moses went up the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord, that is from the ground, was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. Moses has met with God before. Met with him at the burning bush. He's seen him in the fiery pillar that led them out of Egypt. He heard his voice from Mount Sinai as the Ten Commandments were spoken. But this is different. Here, Moses is invited literally into the splendor and the glory of God. And from the ground, it looks like there's just a flaming fire on top of the mountain. All of this glory, all of this nearness and fellowship with God. And and it's so rich and beautiful and you're meant to, to be moved into the presence of this glory. And where are the people? They're thousands of feet below. They're on the ground. And their experience below is very much like your experience Up on the mountain, there's glory. And down here, life is mundane. And up there is splendor. And down here, it is sin and sadness and futility. And up there is comfort and joy and a glimpse of peace with God. And down here, the world around you consumes you with that which is trashy and tasteless. More than that, you're constantly confronted by the ugliness of your own heart. And up there is sight. And down here you're blinded by what everybody else is doing. And you're either bothered by it or you're enticed by it. And Moses is up there 40 days. It seems like an eternity. Why doesn't he come down? Why doesn't he take us up there to be with God? And all the splendor and all the glory of God. And we're down here. Brothers and sisters, if you belong to Christ, you live with that same glory longing. This glory of God high above. One man up there experiencing fellowship with God. The rest of us down here hurting and waiting and longing. Can you see it? Exodus 24 is the story of your own salvation. God calls you to worship him, but you you can't. You don't know how. You don't know him. You don't even know how you'd get to know him. Moreover, how could you? How could you sinful approach a holy God? And so he gives you his book to tell you about his son who provides the blood sacrifice. And he asks you to respond to embrace King Jesus by faith. Yes, Lord, we will obey the gospel. Jesus is enough. 
And he gives them a feast to celebrate until he comes back from the top of the mountain. See, that's why God sent Christ. So you and I would ultimately be taken up into the splendor, into the presence of God, into the glory that Moses sees, that Christ knows. When you leave this chapter, your view of worship must be different. When you come each week to worship here, you're not coming to sing some songs, to recite some creeds and listen to a sermon, maybe see some friends. Do not lose yourself in the weeds and dare to think that you are the recipient of the